also deinstitutionalize, destigmatize, and last but not least is humanize care. And I think since I've been in this space for over 40 years, I can tell you that when I first went into it, you know, it was kind of what did they want? What did they need? As if their needs were very different from my own needs. And as I've been in this space longer and longer, I've come to realize that we are humans. And at the core of our being, some of the things that I need today, I needed 20 years ago, and I will need 20 years from now, are the same things. Welcome to the Nursing Home Podcast, your go-to source for professional insights in the long-term care industry. Hear from leaders and experts as they share current and practical insights to help make the most of your day. I'm a long-term care financial specialist. What that means is I help people plan for the inevitable. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to think about getting old, but it's possible that someday we might need a little bit of care. Here's your host, nursing home administrator turned podcaster, Shmuel Septimus. Okay, and we are live. Welcome to another live broadcast of the nursing home podcast the only podcast that you need to listen to to learn everything that there is about the world of nursing homes and what really goes on in the nursing home space and we like to bring on professionals in the industry who can who can help educate all of us a little bit about this fascinating and greatly misunderstood space so today um, I have the unique privilege of bringing on the Senior Director at the Greenhouse Project, uh, Susan Ryan. And Susan, before we even jump into the Greenhouse Project and the problem that it solves and all that, can you let our listeners know a little bit about who you are and why does this mean something to you? Absolutely. Well, I have been in this nursing home space for a very long time. I happen to be a nurse, and I would say I had my what I've called my call to action moment when I was a director of nursing in a nursing home. And it was at a time where best practices were we tied people up to keep them from falling. And I knew in my heart that that didn't seem right. It didn't seem like it should be best practice, but yet that's what we were rewarded or incentivized in doing. So no wonder that I went into, when there was an opportunity, I went into home care. And it was a grant-funded opportunity to prevent institutionalization of the elderly. And so I jumped at the opportunity to create programs and services, health screening, all sorts of things to keep people out of those dreadful places called nursing homes. And that was kind of my lens for many years. And I endeavored for years to, may we say I was home and community-based before that was cool to be HCBS. But Here's what I learned, as wonderful as home care is, that it really became cost prohibitive or socially isolating for many people within their homes. And by this time, culture change was happening in nursing homes. And I thought, we've got to have dignified spaces where elders can live some life with self-determination and that the workforce can really be an empowered workforce and really be in those relationships with elders. 
And so I went into a life plan community and my goal was just to do everything I could to bring reformation and to kind of hitch our wagons to whatever was going to make these environments better. Heard about the Greenhouse Project in 2005. Mm -hmm. We went to Tupelo, Mississippi to see where the first four greenhouse homes happened. And I'd say my world kind of came together where home care and long-term care came together just beautifully when I saw those four greenhouse homes. I joined the team, uh, the Greenhouse Project team in 2008, and I have been a part of this initiative ever since. And I tell you, I, I become more passionate about the work that we do each day. Wow. Wow. Outstanding. Outstanding. So first of all, thank you for that very full background of who you are and why this means so much to you. And I know we chatted before and, you know, I definitely can relate on so many different levels to a lot of things that you said. Um, first of all, I just want to apologize to the viewers for my horrible lighting, <laughs> just as an aside. <laughs> I'll just get that out of the way. But Let's discuss the problem that the greenhouse project is addressing. So, uh, how about in in your words? I know I have my experience um, as being a nursing home administrator in multiple centers, at least in Massachusetts, and I've gotten to see what it's like to receive the care um, in the nursing home space. And a lot of the challenges that are involved, at no fault necessarily of operators. Or um, we're not talking about bad people here. These are all good people who are trying to do their best. That's but great. we're talking about systemic challenges. What do you see as the biggest problem, uh, other than the specific case that you mentioned earlier, but what is the overall systemic problem that the Greenhouse Project is addressing? You know, I think a lot of times we, we bring institutional thinking. We bring ageist stereotypes into the conversation. And I will also say that, you know, trying to gain efficiencies, economies of scale, when we put our focus there and not on the elder or the staff that are supporting them, that can be a problem. When you prioritize people, when you prioritize the elders and the staff, you can gain some efficiencies there. So I, I use the three words to kind of think about it. It's about deinstitutionalizing not just the environment, that's the physical spaces that we see. And that's important to create more home-like environments or real home is what we call it. But mm -hmm. it's also our thinking and how we see the people that are living in those homes. Do we see them as declining and less than, or do we see them as people that have intrinsic worth? Um, and, and then finally, you know, the workers that support them. So deinstitutionalization of our environment and our thinking, destigmatization. And you think about all the stigmas associated with the people who are living in nursing homes, especially if they have a diagnosis of dementia, the devaluation and the stigma that goes alongside of that person, it, it's just has an impact on who they are and how they're treated. And there's research that would support that. So deinstitutionalize, destigmatize, and last but not least is humanized care. And I think since I've been in this space for over 40 years, I can tell you that when I first went into it, you know, it was kind of what did they want? What did they need? As if their needs were very different from my own needs. And as I've been in this space longer and longer, 
I've come to realize that we are humans. And at the core of our being, some of the things that I need today, I needed 20 years ago, and I will need 20 years from now, are the same things. And, you know, we just, we want dignity. We want self-determination. We want some control over how we live our life. Don't see me by my diagnosis first, but see me as a, as a person. Wow. Well, so, yeah, so th this is something that just, which is so true. And I know just by you coming and saying it out the way it is, um, may feel offensive to some people. Um, you're not saying it in an offensive way at all, but the, maybe the way I'm going to say it will be. But the point is that, unfortunately, this does happen. Even the very people that are actually caring for the seniors by being exposed to them, living and um, caring for them in... Uh, listen, I, uh, thank God I have children to compare this to, uh, but caring for them in a very intimate way, if you will, it can make them feel you know, a little bit of less than. These are human beings who cannot care for their own needs, who cannot control the, you know, their bodily functions sometimes. Their minds may not be what they used to be. So now it's, okay, their needs versus our needs. We're the people and they are the patients. And that's why people want to call them residents and you know, versus patients and all that. Uh, but the, there definitely is a subconscious, unintentional, hopefully, um, you know, this type of definition which creeps in. Add to it the fact that the physical space lends itself to that type of environment because you have this long hallway where people sitting out there, it used to be all the wheelchairs by the nurse's station, and, you know, someone is, has, you said, tying people up. <laughs> We officially don't do that anymore, but that used to be normal, right? But when you're treating people in such a way and greatly understaffed many times, and again, there are systemic issues and there are other podcast episodes that you can listen to where we discuss some of those challenges and some of those solutions, but being as it is, all that lends itself to you know, trying to get by and trying to care. These are some of the most amazing individuals in the world who work, the, but at the same time get desensitized to the fact that these are, this could be us a few years down the road. This, this is not a them. And all of that leads to other challenges in institutionalized care. There can be more, and like you said, there's to support this, but you're talking about clinical negative clinical outcomes. You can talk about um, even just employee relationships with each other. What type of environment are we working in? Are we working in working in somebody's home? It's different than when you're working in an institutionalized setting. And I'll tell you one uh, particular story that I've seen firsthand, I think even once, but for sure I, I remember one specific incident where we did a renovation on the lobby area and it was, it was, it was, uh, I needed a lot, a lot of TLC. You know, I'm not saying there's a whole separate conversation about renovations. Maybe one day we'll bring on something to talk about that. And if that makes sense and whose benefit is that really for, is it for the residents? Is this just Mark? But the point is the moment the renovations were done, you were able to see a physical difference in the demeanor of the staff, the way they went about, you know, loud, shouting in the hallways you're not going to be aggressive you're not going to use maybe certain words that you would otherwise use when you're in an environment that doesn't that that doesn't allow that a big upscale hotel you may act differently 
than when you're in some dungeon, you know, a bar at two o'clock in the morning. It's just, it's a different, we, we are all influenced by, uh, by our surroundings. And this makes a huge difference. So obviously when you're in an institutionalized type of setting and you have the gray paint and you have the long hallways and you have the residents sitting there and they're dressed a certain way, acting a certain way, it's going to lend itself to, to a certain type of care and a certain type of attitude, which again, unintentional, uh, but this is something that, that definitely seeps through. So tell us a little bit. Uh, I think the problem we're familiar with. So what is what is the the uh, greenhouse project? What exactly does it look like, and how does it address these issues? Well, you you really said a lot right there. That let me try to unpack a, a bit, and I'll sure. start with kind of what you just talked about, and that is the the role of the environment to kind of influence our behaviors or how we show up and what we do. And whether mm -hmm. it's staff or whether it's the elders or residents that are in those environments. And, you know, oftentimes, well, let me, let me start with describing a greenhouse home. You walk in, we're talking small. We are talking 10 or 12 private rooms and you walk in and it really looks like it could be your house, your home. And each private room has its own private bath. So when you think about dignity and care and bathing somebody, you've got a shower right there in that person's room. The amount of privacy and dignity by virtue of its environment is pretty powerful. In addition to that, you've got decentralized kitchens, laundry, um, housekeeping is decentralized. So you've got an open kitchen right there. So that means 24 seven access to food and really meeting the residents' needs and being able to get them what they want. So that environment- Let me jump in there for one second. Sure, You just absolutely. said something that is so simple, but something so overlooked. At home, if, if we didn't have access to the fridge for like 20 minutes, we'd go crazy. But yet exactly. we have our, our seniors who live here many times for years and years. If they want a slice of bread, they're at the mercy of an overworked CNA to go bring them bread if, if they can't get it. We're talking about a peanut butter and jelly sandwich at 11 p.m. is a challenge. So, exactly. Okay, keep on going. But that, that's just such an important point that we forget. Right. Well, those are the systems that are really prohibitive. It's the system, but it's also the environmental um, structures that are, are prohibitive in really being able to do what that CNA would have on his or her heart to do and would naturally do if the environment and the systems were to allow that to happen. Um, access to outside, I think, is another really powerful opportunity within greenhouse homes. Um, you know, residents are able to go outside to a secured courtyard in the back. If it's a multi-story building, they have a screened-in porches that are off uh, kind of the dining area where they can get outside, feel fresh air, feel some sunshine on their face. And that feels pretty good. That's pretty normalizing to one's routine. And it's not that a C, an elder resident would say, I want to go outside. Well, I can't take you right now. But that ability to be able to go out rather effortlessly um, or more effortlessly than it would be in a traditional building. So the environment is powerful and really being able to create spaces that are conducive to living lives and supporting 
the workforce to really being able to um, engender the meaningful life that they would like to do for the residents that live there. Something else you said, though, when you were talking about the intimate task that um, a CNA would be doing for an elder and the reality that certainly there are some abilities that have been lost in the process of aging and so forth. That's one reason they're there. But one of the things that we believe is really important is let's focus on retained abilities and let's really identify what each person is capable of doing. And for each person, it would be highly unique, but we want to make sure that each person is engaged in life and not just known by their care needs, but really what will it take for worse waiting? Right. And, And just really making sure that each person has that opportunity to live life on his or her own terms and really understanding even when there's cognitive impairment, even when there are physical mobility issues, there are still retained abilities. And we want to know what those are for each person so that we can ensure they are able not just to receive care, but to to give back and to have purposeful living. Got it. So I have a million questions here, but let's start with this. First of all, can you give a few examples or maybe a couple of examples of some of these retained abilities that you maybe allow them to express and continue? Sure. We had, um, I'll give you a, a story. A, a woman had moved into take a story. A, pardon me? I said, we'll always take a story. Oh, good. I love stories. And I, I think Greenhouse is best told by stories. But this was a, an elder that moved in actually on hospice to a greenhouse home in mm-hmm. Michigan. And you know, through those deep knowing relationships, consistent staffing is another thing where you're able to build a relationship with each of the people in that home. Well, this caregiver recognized that this person had grown up in Iowa on a farm and that this woman had loved gardening. And so they suggested that they go out to the courtyard where they had some raised flower beds. And long story short, before long, this woman saw some flowers that needed to be deadheaded. And before long, she was no longer in her wheelchair, but pulling herself up to kind of grab hold of those, the heads of the flowers that needed to be pruned and taken care of. You would have defined her by her losses when she moved in and they were plentiful. In fact, given less than six months to live. The other thing, and she did have cognitive impairment, There was a a dog in the house and she really loved the dog and she'd want to get outside and be with the dog, work on the plants. Long story short, she lived another three years, really experiencing a quality of life that had not been previously envisioned when she moved in. And if we had only looked at all her problems and the list of things that she couldn't do or couldn't participate in, if we didn't zero in on who she is and what would be important to her, we would have missed some really important opportunities for her to engage in a meaningful life. Wow, wow. That's an outstanding story. And it it kind of, you know, this is the underlying component of all the care that we give in this space. And that is by by seeing this, seeing people for who they are, not for what they can no longer do, is a complete uh, game changer. 
I, I'm recalling now that at a point I wanted the activity aids um, in our regular nursing home, meaning not, not non-greenhouse uh, nursing home, to have a conversation with our residents and get to know them, write a few things about them, came from this place, worked for 60 years as X, family situation is this, uh, you know, likes whatever, likes animals, likes, you know, like you said, gardening, likes other things. And these simple, simple things, even from a care standpoint, when someone's being combative and, and unfortunately, as we know happens, someone's throwing their, their dinner across the room. Yeah, so like you said, there, there are losses and there are things, but there's, an, again, comparing it to children, it's the same thing, right? You know, there's, there's usually an underlying, their reaction, maybe the way that they're reacting and the inability to effectively communicate is where the losses come in. But there's a human being in there that is expressing disapproval, displeasure, pain, concern, frustration. Some, um, it's not random usually. And if we can who they are better, if we can take a quick look at an index card that's right there, there might be HIPAA problems with that, but whatever it is. But if someone can look at look at their chart on the computer or whatever, or know them even better, right? Consistent staffing actually know who this person is. Like, oh, it's you know, it's two a.m. and this is when she always would wake up for the last thirty years, and she, her job as what do you know, a nurse in a nursing home, or whatever it was, right? Um, and then you have a way to do it. So now we, what do we do? We bring her to the nurse's station and maybe even bring her behind the nurse's station and give her some papers to ruffle through because that's what we do. And it makes her feel alive. And then watch her calm down magically and then bring her back to bed. Or, or maybe even something a little bit more productive, you know, something depending on obviously the skill level. But I want to go back to a different point that you mentioned. Um, I'm just looking at a comment that's coming. We'll get to that also if we have time. Um, you mentioned about going outside. I just just to make this a little bit more relatable, right? Everyone r- right now, unfortunately, with another surge in COVID uh, all over the world, including in the United States, including Boston, I assume, including where you guys. I don't even know where you are, but <laughs> where you are as well. I'm in Maryland, and it's it's we're going up to. Oh, so you're in Maryland, right? I think you mentioned that last time. So. When we were inside, let's say, and everyone's quarantined or inside or doing things differently than a year ago, right? Life is not the same. And we feel stressed and there's anxiety and all sorts of um, fallouts. There's also some mental health issues. There's also challenges and and, uh, frustrations that are being expressed in different ways because we cannot go to the restaurants like we used to going to. Our shopping is different and we can't spend as much time outside. Now, imagine living every single day without the ability to get a sandwich, without the ability to go to the bathroom, without the ability to walk outside, get fresh air, without the ability to make a phone call, without the ability to get out of bed, without and without permission, plus outside assistance. And not for a few days and not where you could bend the rule, but is looking maybe and, you know, and, or make your own decisions. This is indefinitely, and it's becoming more and more restrictive, and you know that it's a one-way street. What does that do to a person? So, and add to that, put, putting somebody in an institutionalized setting, and again, I'm not anti-nursing homes. You know, it's, it's a very, very nested place for a lot of people, but we're having a conversation about doing it even better. So putting someone like that in an institutionalized setting adds to all of this. Yes, now they're, they're going to be safe, 
and now they're going to be cared for and their underlying physical challenges are going to be dealt with and they have care plans and all the stuff that good DONs you know, know how to do and administrators take the credit for. All that stuff um, is going to happen. But imagine if they can have they can f- have a little bit of independence. And like you said, it can stress the areas where they can actually, where, where they thrive and they, and, and the skill abilities that they are still retaining. Now that's a game. That's a whole different environment. So that's what makes this concept so exciting to me, which brings directly to my next question, which I'm, I'm scared to hear what the answer is, um, <laughs> which is this sounds amazing. And if you speak to operators, which I do in my line of business, They'll tell you, this is great. This is wonderful. This is what we all want. How is this financially feasible? Private rooms, consistent staffing, um, private bathrooms, obviously. And by the way, that's something we didn't touch on also. You know, when you take a regular person, you go into a hospital and within minutes, you're wearing a gown exposed in ways that you're not used to be and people prodding and touching you all over your body and everybody's checking you out, which we understand that it's necessary, but that's not a comfortable situation to be in. You lose no. some of your humanity and your dignity when that happens. So that's another thing that's restored with this. But how does it work financially and what are the limitations? So there are four things that I tell people to think about when you're trying to make this work. It mm-hmm. can work. It does work. Here's what you need to think about. Controlling your development cost. Size matters, so keeping those the square footage of each home down will be important. Um, really making sure, and there are, are so many different designs, and you know, when we look at how much does it cost per square foot to build a greenhouse home, it varies it, uh, from state to state, where you're building, do you have the land, and you know, what, what do you have? So development costs, how you're funding or financing um, and there are some that have gotten USDA financing at really good terms. Um, we've had tax exempt bonds or many of our um, nonprofit providers that have done this. Um, conventional banks have given some really good rates and good terms. I'm hoping that we're going to throughout this crisis that um, I'd love to see us get incentives from a financing perspective that would incentivize what we know has worked well during the COVID crisis. And so we'll see about that. So development of funding, um, financing, um, your payer mix and really looking at your revenue and thinking about what mix of Medicaid, private funds and Medicare can you put together to achieve the financial viability. And uh, you know, it, depending on the state that you're in and what the Medicaid reimbursement rate would be, Some states will obviously make it easier than other states to make that work. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've got some greenhouse communities that are over 60%, probably 70% Medicaid. They're in a state where the Medicaid rate is a decent uh, reimbursement rate. One state has a $10 a day bump in Medicaid reimbursement rates if you are doing a small house type model. I want to see more states offer that type of incentive. Um, And last but not least, it's really controlling your um, operating cost and looking at it from a staffing perspective and really thinking about sometimes we we call it flattening the hierarchy and really making sure that from a direct care staff perspective, we have ample staffing 
for um, the care partner to resident ratio. We want to make sure the nurses that are administering the meds and really, you know, making rounds and seeing the residents, we want to make sure that staffing is ample. But oftentimes we've got layers and layers of people that we think we need, administrative folks, um, middle management leaders. And so we want to make sure that we're really watching our staffing uh, model. We believe you can control food costs when you know who likes what to eat. You're not cooking oatmeal for everybody. You're cooking oatmeal because this person and this person likes it, not all 10 or 12. And those are some of the things that will make it work. We use a universal worker model. So that person that is doing care is also doing the cooking and the cleaning, the laundry and, and those sorts of things. So again, ample staffing there, but in context of COVID and infection control, I have fewer people coming and going. I don't have dietary staff and housekeeping staff and laundry staff coming in and out. That's all comprised in that direct care worker role. Wow, that's quite, quite a complete answer. Uh, that that I'm very happy. For. Um, the okay. Let me, let me try to process this for my brain, and for maybe those who are listening. Obviously, uh, building anything is expensive, right? Making any structural change changes is is expensive and challenging, and taking an existing structure and creating a greenhouse type of uh, environment is going to be a challenge. May, and sometimes may not be possible. When you're building something new, on the other hand, um, it's definitely more feasible. And again, I'm not saying that it's not, not feasible to do it to an existing structure. But from a financial standpoint, um, by uh, a few things you said. First of all, the, this is a recognized better way of giving care. And, I, and my humble opinion, is just this is the light bulb that was going on a few minutes ago, um, is that the more we can push and prove and shout from the rooftops that this is how care should be delivered, the more we can have uh, government agencies recognizing this and the Department of Public Health recognizing this, CMS recognizing this, and that this works, and that ultimately this will be financially better for them as well. There'll be less people going out to the hospital, less falls, there'll be less negative clinical outcomes translate into more expense on the payer, whoever the payer is, right? Exactly. So the more, like you said, and there's a state that has a $10 a day bump in reimbursement because they realize this and they realize how important it is and they want to encourage this. So I think that to make this widely accepted, it would have to, I don't think, I wonder if it'll ever be mandated that you have to deliver this type of care. I doubt that that will happen, but at least to be, in, maybe it will. I would love to see that happen, but maybe at the very least to be incentivized from everyone, from the banks. Uh, maybe they have their own incentives for doing this, financial incentives uh, from the government agencies, from the public health departments, and every on the city, state, and even even on a um, on a national level, um, in order to promote this. But even before that happens, there are there are ways of of making this. It's more feasible than people might think. Because everyone says, yeah, of course, if I could afford one, oh, one second, one other point is what you said before, you're combining the staffing. So the, your CNA is also a housekeeper, is also a diet aide. Um, first of all, that helps also break the mold. 
Yeah. Uh, besides for financially making sense, dollars and cents, again, you may, ha- may need instead of, you know, two aides and two housekeeping staff, you know, one and a half diet aides or however we say it, uh, you might need four people instead of six or what, uh, whatever the numbers are. I'm, you, I'm sure you know the numbers better than me. But I'm just saying from, from the earlier part of the conversation, you're changing the model. I'm not someone who, who works on the, on the mill tray, you know, on the line in the kitchen. I'm not someone who brings carts up to the unit and then says, lunch is here and runs away. And then mm-hmm. if the CNA mm-hmm. was busy with a crisis, that lunch will sit there for 25 minutes and then deliver it cold exactly. to the rest of This is, I know I'm, I'm working with, with Bets for the last two years. I know what she likes. I know what she doesn't like. When it comes lunchtime, which today might make sense to be at 1230, even though yesterday was 12 o'clock. I don't know if that's how practical, but the point is I'm going to make her her food that she likes and I'm going to serve it to her and clean up after her and then care for her and be with her you know, throughout my whole shift. And that that's a whole different type of way of relating. If my whole relationship is room to room and you know, working with the residents, getting them out of bed, cleaning them, bathing them, dressing them. But I'm doing this for everybody equally all day. And unfortunately, maybe don't have the sufficient help that I need. That helps uh, create that type of mindset. But if if I'm actually living like almost like with a parent or with multiple grandparents at the same time, um, and I'm looking after these two, three, four residents, and after all their needs, that anything that's, you know, that I can't do as opposed to I'm not a nurse or a doctor, um, that definitely can help break this model. Uh, I, I'm looking at the time, but we could talk about this all day because... Um, <laughs> yes, it's good. <laughs> cause, and, uh, really, because this is such a necessary change, and I'm hoping that it's really going to happen. I really, really am. Oh, I, I hope it's going... It is happening already, but I hope it's going to even grow from here. But let's talk, and I mentioned briefly, how did these facilities that are operating in this type of model, how did they fare during COVID? I think that's the the most beautiful thing. You know, I think as a nurse, I always thought that this was the best model to mitigate or or for infection control. So for cold and flu seasons and and that sort of thing, it's not like we haven't dealt with infections and viruses and so forth and so on. Having all private rooms. I mean, there's just so many things about this model that would say this would be a model that I would assume would do well during COVID. And in fact, our homes did incredibly well. We've been capturing data and uh, our mortality rate and confirmed cases of COVID have been um, significantly less than the traditional counterparts. And we're working with a a research analyst at uh, Mm -hmm. University of North Carolina, and we're hoping to really unpack that data to really compare a greenhouse home data with um, a traditional home that's in the same geographical area. So we're really looking, you know, because community spread has been certainly connected with an increase of cases in that nursing home. So how did Greenhouse do in that same neighborhood, if you will, that same community? And uh, so we will be unpacking that. We hope to get um, a paper published. But I, you know, just to tell you off the top that they have fared really well and significantly less cases and significantly less uh, on the mortality side. Mm-hmm. And that, um, that does my heart so good. Yeah, so we can tell that you're, you're definitely in the right place here. Um, mm-hmm. I, we know there's one facility, and there may have been others, but that I saw, I think it was in France, that um, they in, the, in March and April, 
they made a rule that no one leaves or comes, right? Maybe we spoke about this already. I don't remember. Um, that's my dementia. <laughs> Let's focus on the party that don't have dementia. <laughs> um, but the point is that they said absolutely nobody walks out from this place. No one goes in, not administrators, not nurses, not CNAs, not doctors. And, you know, obviously, and they had, I think, zero cases until whatever point they felt it was free to go out. Um, that's not the case in a greenhouse uh, facility, but it's much closer to that than a typical facility where you have just so many more people. So you have the number of employees is much greater, and therefore you have the, the number of people coming and going, but also shared staff. So in the same shared room, shared spaces, just you know, having much less uh, privacy. Uh, just if you don't mind, uh, I'm just looking at uh, Stephanie Erickson left a couple of comments that I just want to put on the screen for a second and read them. Um, so Stephanie says that love the discussion. We do not disappear as we get older. We still need the basics such as peanut butter and jelly sandwiches when we want, having privacy during a shower, getting fresh air daily. We also need more than just the basics, but these examples really highlight how we take these things for granted when we institutionalize people. And I, I mean, love that, really Stephanie. True. That's That's really well said. Yes, it definitely is. Um, I, I mean, this is this is really what we were discussing. Um, I didn't read this yet, but we'll read it now. Great idea to create a converse, conversation tool for staff to use, oh, to get to know people. This is what I was talking about earlier. Sometimes staff won't initiate this on their own. This is a great way to build connections so that they can see their resident as a unique individual with a life of experiences. As an administrator, sometimes they don't have anything to do. So... <laughs> that's a joke uh, but i would go sometimes to the rooms and and really meet with some of the residents to actually to get to know them and to it's fascinating i mean the the, the of today unfortunately many of them will be nursing home residents tomorrow it was i had one particular resident don't know where he's up to these days who was a hospital administrator and i was able to talk business with him i you know he was going through obviously had a lot of challenges and was where he was for a reason, but I was able to talk to him about his hospital administrator days and some of the challenges he dealt with and try to learn from his experiences to my nursing home administrator days. And even if his advice was not on point, and even if what he says was no longer relevant, just the fact that we're able to relate on that occasion obviously changes my perception of who he is, but more importantly, it changes his perception of who he is. And the truth is, his points are on point, what he said. And what he did said, what he said is relevant. And he, his experience, you know, he did have quite a variation of, you know, very interesting experiences, which did play on some of the things that we were dealing with. You know, not everything changes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this is really just a fascinating, fascinating conversation. I just see that we went so late, so we're going to have to wrap things up here. So, Susan, before we let you go, any final thoughts you would like to share with our listeners or our viewers right now um, about the Greenhouse Project before we tell them where to go to learn more about this? Sure. I guess the the only thing that I would say is that it really starts with each one of us and really taking a look at our own beliefs and perceptions, our own mindset about, and, and Stephanie kind of alluded to that, is how we see people needing long-term care, how we see elders, and do we see them as less than or not capable of doing some of the same things that would, would be normal things for us to do. And while some of their abilities have changed, they're still people, 
and to just fundamentally just see them as a person with intrinsic worth. And I think when we take a look at our beliefs, that will influence our behaviors. Um, I always say words are the fruit of our thoughts. And so as we change our mindset and start speaking things that are more positive and really framing their, their retained abilities, that helps to inform our behaviors. And then you kind of alluded to it, even the tool that you developed, what is the system that will support the change and how can we create symptom, uh, systems and infrastructure to support uh, some of those things to kind of make life better. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Thank you, Susan, so much for coming on to the Nursing Home Podcast. Um, if our listeners want more about the Greenhouse Project, about some of the work that you guys are doing, where's the best place to send them? Well, we have a website, thegreenhouseproject.org. And uh, we also do a podcast as well. It's called Elevate Elder Care. And, um, you know, we talk about some of these same issues and kind of to your point, what can we do to really seize this moment in time to really affect change and um, to say incentives matter. And I think this is the time where we need to start incentivizing the things that we know work. And it's really doing the right thing for elders and those that support them. Amazing. Amazing. Okay. So head on over to thegreenhouseproject.org or check out the Elevate podcast. Is that what it's called again? Elevate yeah. Elder Care. Uh, Elevate Elder Care podcast. Okay, I'll put all the links in the show notes to these uh, resources to learn more about the work that Susan and the Greenhouse Project are doing and to see if that makes sense for your center or just to understand you know, some of these ideas that we spoke about a little bit more in depth. And as always, you can head on over to the nursinghomepodcast.com and to check out this episode and all the past episodes of the Nursing Home Podcast. So thank you, Susan, so much for coming on the podcast. It was really an honor to have you. Now that you've enjoyed this episode of the Nursing Home Podcast, I'd really appreciate if you'd rate this podcast and let everyone else know what an amazing resource this is for those wanting to learn anything and everything about the nursing home industry. So head on over to ratethispodcast.com slash nursing home. Again, ratethispodcast.com slash nursing home. Leave me a review and let the world know what an amazing show this truly is. Thank you so much for listening and make sure to stay tuned and subscribe so you don't miss any other episodes.